Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ted Naiman. Now, Dr. Naiman is a primary care doctor here in Seattle, and he has his own story about he how he transitioned from predominantly vegetarian Adventist life, uh, both at family and in medical school, to learning about the benefits of a low-carb lifestyle. But what separates Ted from sort of your average low-carb doctor or your average low-carb enthusiast is he's not so much in the camp of the low-carb high-fat. Ted is really big on protein and the importance of protein. And it's amazing how protein as a macronutrient can be so controversial. Now remember, we don't eat fats and we don't eat proteins, we eat real foods, but the percentages matter. And there's this concern or this fear about getting too much protein. So hearing Ted's perspective is is very interesting from that standpoint because it's it's a message that we don't hear a lot of. And it's still controversial, some of it, uh, but I think it's a great perspective. Now, he's also known as the exercise guy. If you've seen his before and after pictures, uh, he's ripped. I mean, this guy is is built... Um, and, and fit, not super bulky, but fit and trimmed, great lean body mass. And he does it on 15 minutes a day of exercise, which makes a lot of people unhappy <laughs> and upset at him. But he gives us some of his secrets and some of his tips about how to achieve that. And more importantly, how to do it safely for people who uh, maybe don't have an experience in exercise. And let's be honest, not everybody's going to get the results he has, but the importance of exercise, how it contributes to health is still a crucial concept that maybe doesn't get enough emphasis because although exercise may not be the key to weight loss, there are some other components about maintaining lean muscle mass and strength that can be very important for health and recovering from episodes where you may have struggles with your health. So we talk about that. We talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Ted as the doctor and as the person. Uh, he's got a very relaxed uh, approach to things, a very relaxed attitude um, that hopefully you'll appreciate. If you want the full transcripts, go to dietdoctor.com. Otherwise, enjoy this interview with Dr. Ted Naiman. Hey, everybody. Quick break in the interview here. I want to tell you about one of our special programs we have for Diet Doctor members. It's called our Weight Loss for Good course. Now, a lot of people focus on weight loss, but let's be honest. Not all weight loss is the same. There are lots of different ways that you can lose weight. And that's why we named this weight loss for good. Weight loss for good for good health because we want to lose weight in ways that promote lean body mass, that promote body fat loss, that promote our overall health. So that's a big push for our weight loss for good message. Also, weight loss for good meaning sustain for good because the studies show and people's experience shows that weight loss tends to go up and down and isn't always sustained. Well, we've designed this program to help give you the tools to make this a sustained weight loss program. So go to dietdoctor.com forward slash podcast, and we'll have some information and a link there to our weight loss for good course. It's a 10-week course that starts with what we call our crash courses to give you all the basic information, and then our more in-depth deep dives after that to give you all the tools you need to succeed at weight loss for good. All right, now we'll get back to the interview here, but definitely check that out on dietdoctor.com forward slash podcast. Dr. Ted Naiman, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Oh, wow. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Ah, it's great to have you here. Now, in the world of low-carb and social media, you're sort of known as the protein guy and the, the exercise guy. But it wasn't <laughs> always that case, right? Like, I, I heard some stories about your upbringing and your background and very different. I mean, you were brought up in an Adventist tradition and you went to school at Loma Linda, which is a Seventh-day Adventist school, which is sort of the 
contrary to high protein and, and low carb. So tell us about your transition, about what you what you learned growing up in, in that type of environment and how your thought process differs and how that change happened. Okay, yeah, sure. So yes, I, I was raised in an Adventist tradition and Adventists, of course, are famous for being vegetarians. And uh, I, my upbringing was that, you know, basically animal fat and cholesterol and saturated fat was really terrible. And the goal was to eat as many plants as possible. And so I had this really healthy diet on paper where I was eating lots of whole grains and, um, you know, just basically lots of whole wheat and that kind of thing. And it, it was supposedly the healthiest diet, right? And then I went to Loma Linda Medical Center. And, of course, Loma Linda is this famous blue zone where everybody is vegetarian. And uh, it's you know, sort of an Adventist vegetarian mecca. And I just, well... My personal experience was that I was never in really great shape, right? My body composition was not that great. I was not that healthy. I had a lot of uh, issues. I had, you know, really bad eczema and I had really bad body composition and I didn't feel particularly healthy at all. And so what I ended up realizing is that, oh, diet doesn't matter, right? Diet's not a big deal because here I am eating the healthiest diet you possibly could and I'm in really bad shape, right? Yeah. So clearly diet is not that important. And honestly, even though Loma Linda is a, you know, a diet-based, you know, um, uh, institution, they're very big in, into diet and lifestyle, even there, my training was, was basically, okay, if somebody's having bad health outcomes, it's mostly genetic, right? If you're obese, it's, it's genetic. If both your parents are obese, 80% chance you're going to be obese. If you have type 2 diabetes, it's mostly genetic. Well, that's because your parent was diabetic or your grandparent. And so I got this training that, oh, yes, diet is important. You should never eat meat. But at the same time, if you get a bad outcome, you can blame it on your genetics and you just, you know, you should just feel sorry for people who are overweight or diabetic. They can't help it because their parents were overweight or diabetic. So you do the best you can and you just give them more and more drugs, right? Yeah. So this is my mindset. It's like, okay, diet is important. Almost from a religious point of view, you should not eat animals and you'll be healthy. And then if something bad happens to you, it's really just bad genetics, right? So when you started your practice, that was still the mindset you had when you were seeing patients one after the other after the other. Well, this was my mindset in medical school and in my first year of internship. Okay. So I did my internship in South Carolina, which was just the diabetes and obesity capital of the country mm. at the time. And I saw just a ton of pathology, just like every diabetic complication you could imagine just over and over and over again. So here I am in residency with this clinic with just tons of diabetes pathology and everybody's just slowly getting worse, right? They're getting yeah. fatter and more diabetic and amputations and blindness and kidney failure and the whole thing. And really... I'm just there feeling sorry for people because I, I think, wow, you know, such bad genetics. How such could you, genetics. you just can't overcome that, right? You, yeah. It's not your fault. You're just born that way. Right. And then really it was a patient of mine who came in one day and, wow, he'd lost 30 pounds and his blood sugar was totally normal. And he told me, I feel great. And I asked him, I, I said, well, what did you do? You have to tell me what you did. So I can tell everybody else to do the same thing, right? Yeah. And this guy pulls out a copy of the Atkins book, and he's like, I went to, on this Atkins diet where I just didn't eat carbs, 
and bam, I feel fantastic. And I that blew my mind because never had I seen anyone go on a vegetarian diet, you know, and have this miraculous transformation. This is this is my first experience with diet as a huge lever for health, and it was a big deal. Were you interested to, like, jump in right away, or were you still like, yeah, but that can't really be healthy. I'm sure there's something to that that's more concerning. Or, like, were you, were you did you, like, resist it right away because you're training, or were you open right away oh, to no. it? Oh, no. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've yeah. ever seen. I was so excited, and I will never forget what happened to me. I, I went to my instructors in residency, and I was like, look at this guy. He lost all this weight. His blood sugar's down. His blood pressure's down. His A1C's down. He lost a bunch of weight. He looks like a million dollars. And, and well, they looked at me and they said, yeah, what happened to his total cholesterol? <laughs> and I, I hadn't really paid any attention to it, you know? And so I looked at it and I was like, oh, yeah, well, it did, I guess, go up. 20 points. Yeah, so cholesterol. I was crestfallen and my instructors were like, oh, good job, name." And He probably had a heart attack in the parking lot oh and God. you're basically going to kill people. And they told me under no circumstances could I recommend this diet. And this was just a, a bad idea. So, um, but that was the spark, you know, and then uh, in residency, we were required to do a research paper and uh, I started researching basically macronutrients and health. And that was about 20 years ago. And I, you know, back then it was a lot harder to do research, but I found all this evidence that, wow, people are eating way more carbohydrates than they probably should. Yeah. And I've been doing this low carb thing now for 20 years. Wow. So, so was it that residency experience that made you change personally? I mean, they may have tried to Correct. prevent you from helping your patients that way, but did you, did you help yourself that way right away in residency? Uh, yeah, definitely. I yeah. mean, I personally had a massive health transformation from going on a low-carb diet. I was definitely skinny fat. I was never really fat fat, but I definitely lost about 20 pounds, and my body composition improvements were huge. And, uh, you know, my before and afters are not that dramatic, but it felt really dramatic to me. Yeah. Well, that's important. I mean, how you feel. There's one thing. We do a lot of, you know, look at the difference vi visually, but how you feel is even more important than the, the difference visually. Isn't right. It? Yeah. So once you got out of residency and got into practice, did you just hit the ground running as a low-carb doctor, using that as an intervention right away in people? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've basically been recommending carb restriction for my whole 20-year career now. And uh, uh, initially, it was really under the radar because I was worried about this total cholesterol. I mean, who knew yeah. what was going to happen? This has got to be bad, right? But, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, the as time goes on, thanks to things like Diet Doctor, the legitimacy is definitely increasing and it's a lot easier to practice low-carb medicine. Yeah, great to hear. Now, you use the word low-carb and low-carb medicine, and that frequently is used interchangeably with ketosis and, and ketogenic medicine, I guess you could say. But they're not always the same. So do you draw a line in differentiating them and when you would, you would use one or the other or the benefits are one or the other? Just give us an idea of how you see the difference between low-carb and keto. Right. I don't really use the word keto because I'm not telling anyone to track ketone levels. It doesn't seem to be super necessary. And I know that anyone who's restricting carbs even below about 100 grams a day is going to be at least in a light ketosis 
you know, off and on. And so I don't really, I see it on a spectrum or a continuum. And for me, just plain old low carb is good enough because that does imply a significant amount of ketosis. And so uh, for me, uh, keto, the, the, the popular keto diet for me is kind of evolved into something where you're just going out of your way to eat a ton of fat and drive your ketone levels up as high as possible. And I think that at a certain point, that becomes um, more bad than good. And so I don't really focus on ketone levels or make sure you eat enough fat to be in extreme ketosis at all times. So I just like the carbohydrate restriction side of keto. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a fascinating discussion because it seems like there are some people who need to get into ketosis to break down barriers or move forward, and some people are going to thrive on a lower carb, uh, not worrying about ketosis, and trying to find who's in what camp um, can just happen with self-experimentation. But it sounds like for most people or pretty much for everybody, you're not even really that concerned about it. You say just cut the carbs down to about 100 grams and you're going to improve. Right, right. And, yeah. and the, the reality is that everyone thinks of ketosis as some sort of binary switch, but it's just this slow, gradual continuum from making tiny amounts of ketones to making a whole bunch of ketones. Yeah. And all of these biological processes are happening at all times in everyone. So everyone's generating a tiny amount of ketones at all times. And then as you restrict more and more carbohydrate or expend more energy, uh, your ketone levels go up and it's, it's because it's on a spectrum. Yeah. I don't really say, oh, right now at this second you're in ketosis and then, you know, uh, an hour later, oh, now you're not in ketosis. It's just, I don't like thinking about it in this binary yeah. fashion. How about the, the adaptation process though? I mean, it, does it, uh, it seems like it's for some people, they really have to make a jump to help their body kind of flip a switch, like you said, and then they can sort of back off and go in and out of ketosis. But to get into it for a first time and train your body to get off of all that glucose and sugar that you've been burning for so long, that maybe it takes a little bit uh, more of an extreme step than just 100 grams of low carb. Have you found that to be the case at all? Well, I think, yeah, fat, fat adaptation is a huge big deal, and that's very real, and you really have to upregulate the ability to run your whole metabolism off of fat. Yeah. And I think that's a, a slow and gradual process, and you'll find a lot of people who will tell you that they can't uh, perform athletically as well as they could for months after adopting a low-carb diet just because you're slowly upregulating the ability to generate a bunch of ATP from fat at a high enough rate. And, and actually, I feel like this is unrelated to just making ketones. So like I could take anyone off the street and just tell them to not eat carbs for 16, 18, 20, 24 hours, and they're going to be fully generating ketones. But they're going to feel awful and they're going to yeah. be starving and they're going to their exercise performance is going to nosedive. And now you're talking about the process of fat adaptation, which to me is totally different than just making ketones, which honestly anyone on any high carb diet could just not eat carbs for you know 16 to 24 hours and they're in ketosis so to me it's not about it's not so much about the ketones it's more about fat adaptation and yeah. getting better at running your whole metabolism off of fat yeah and so much of this has to do with our insulin levels and our glucagon levels and that ratio and being able to train our body to have lower insulin levels which is required for 
uh, ketosis. If I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it seems like of the two, lower insulin and higher ketones, you would be much more interested in just focusing on the insulin and forgetting about the ketones. Would that be accurate? Correct, yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I think the ketones come along for the ride. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So when it comes to a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet, you know, how to formulate it in what percentages can certainly vary from person to person. And one of the biggest areas of controversy is protein. All right, we sort of all agree you limit the fat, I mean, sorry, we all agree you limit the carbohydrates um, and then you eat the proper amount of protein and you can fill in the rest with fat. So the discussion comes around what is the proper amount of protein. And, you know, it's, it's a, such an interesting discussion. And going back to the, the RDA, the, um, you know, the recommended daily allowance of protein, uh, you see ranges out there from 10% of your calories to um, – 0.8 grams per kilogram to 0.3 grams per pound, which is really a small amount of protein, but somehow that's the recommended daily allowance. So help us understand what this RDA of protein means and how it can be so small compared to what we're, we're used to. Right. So the RDA is just a bare absolute minimum where below which you're going to be just abjectly deficient. And the RDA in no way suggests how much protein you should eat. It's just how much protein you should never, ever, ever, ever go below. So that's a really important concept. It's almost impossible to eat, quote unquote, too much protein. You you basically can't do it. So it's very, very possible to not eat enough protein and have protein deficiencies, which is horrible and very severe and you'll actually die. So the RDA is just there to tell you what to not go below. In no way does that suggest how much you should be eating. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point because when we talk about the RDA for vitamin A or vitamin D or omega-3s or whatever, calcium and, and vitamin C, it's sort of accepted that it's a minimum. Um, right. But somehow when we talk to protein, certain nutritional sects have turned that into a maximum that right. we shouldn't go above it. But it was never intended that way. It was, was never it? intended that way. And, and I really don't even know where that comes from. Yeah. Well, so then, the, so then there is some legitimate concern, though, about, um, well, what if we are eating too much protein? So um, it, I guess it can come from three different perspectives. One is um, longevity. Right, that uh, the concern that too much protein harms longevity, lower proteins improves longevity. Two is this, you know, almost mythical um, stimulation of mTOR and how that affects with protein. And three is ketogenesis, um, you know, with gluconeogenesis and kicking you out of ketosis. So let's let's take each one of those individually, um, starting with the last one. So gluconeogenesis, it's a big word, <laughs> you know. Uh, basically creating new glucose in your body from something else and frequently from protein. Um, Is it real? Does it happen? Gluconeogenesis is constantly occurring and your liver is making every bit of glucose you ever need all the time, 100% of the time, whether you're eating carbs or not. And gluconeogenesis is demand-driven. If you need more glucose, you'll do more gluconeogenesis but it's not supply-driven. So eating extra protein does not increase gluconeogenesis. But then you see all these reports of people who are following a ketogenic diet and you they increase their protein intake and their ketones disappear or decrease. Right. So what's the explanation there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you will suppress ketones if you eat uh, more protein. That's absolutely true. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I guess so your point would be then, since I'm not concerned about a ketogenic diet, I don't care if gluconeogenesis is happening and ketones are going down. As long as you're still following carb restriction, you're still being healthy and health trumps ketosis. Would that be an adequate statement for... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so people who are on carnivore diets and eating much higher levels of protein, um, any concerns there with, with getting too much? Not really. I mean, you know, uh, basically even in... Even in medical circles, you know, up to 35% protein seems to be fine. Nobody's seen any problems with protein levels that high. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hunter-gatherers were eating, you know, at least 19 to 35% protein in their diet. And so I don't really see any problem from carnivore diets. I mean, usually your average person on a carnivore diet is eating about 30% protein. And in no way do I think that's too much. Right. And what about this concept of mTOR, right? mTOR being uh, a very important nutrient sensor and growth stimulator in our body. Uh, without it being stimulated, we would not grow. We would not develop muscles. But with it being stimulated too much, there's concern that it's going to cause abnormal cell growth, so cancer cell growth. Um, how do you wrap your head around the, the concerns of mTOR with too much protein? Well, I think that there's definitely this sort of yin and yang to anabolism and catabolism and you have to go back and forth and you have to have some of each and you have to have feasting and you have to have fasting. And my advice is just keep insulin pulsatile, you know, by just not eating all the time. And I think you'll probably be fine. I don't I'm not convinced that eating more fat and less protein is going to be uh, longevity benefit benefit to anyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, and I know this is controversial and I'm a big fan of Dr. Rosedale and a lot of people out there think, you know, if you can just squeak by with the very lowest amount of protein, uh, you're going to live longer. But I don't think we have any data in humans to support that at all. And honestly, you know, look at Look at elderly people in America. You know, American adults age 70 to 79 eat 66 grams of protein a day and 247 grams of carbohydrates. So I really don't think protein restriction is that beneficial because those people are restricting the hell out of protein and their outcomes are not necessarily that great on average. Yeah, frequently we talk about protein from eating too much standpoint, but what's not talked about enough is how the requirements probably go up even higher as we age. Right. And the risk of sarcopenia and not having enough muscle mass and falls and fractures, um, do you think that could be um, almost completely abolished with increased protein intake? Absolutely. I mean, the reality is the stronger you are, the longer you're going to live, the lo more muscle mass you have, the longer you're going to live. Falls are one of the biggest killers of elderly people. And if you're restricting protein for some sort of theoretical longevity benefit that's never been demonstrated in humans, um, you're basically risking some very real osteoporosis and sarcopenia for some theoretical longevity benefits that just haven't been demonstrated. So mm -hmm. I think it's a horrible idea. I don't, uh, you know, 
Walter Longo, all of his data is from mice, and we have zero human data to support protein restriction. So until I see some sort of data in humans, I'm probably not going to restrict protein. Yeah, it's, longevity data is such a minefield because, you know, you need 30, 40, 50-year studies to, to really prove it. So it's trying to draw best conclusions from the data that's there, and a lot of the times that can come from overstating the quality of the evidence and, and the support that you have for your opinions, can it? Right. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Good summary. It's bad. Oh, and then there's the issue of how our bodies respond to protein um, depending on our insulin sensitivity. And I had a great talk with Professor Ben Bickman, who likes to talk about research from uh, Dr. Cahill and others, showing that our insulin and uh, glucagon ratio and our insulin response to protein is very different depending on our baseline metabolic health and insulin sensitivity. So do you see any concerns in someone who um, is fairly insulin resistant at, at baseline, uh, fighting with metabolic syndrome, who hasn't really gotten a handle on it yet, eating too much protein then because of the insulinogenic response from it? No, I actually have bigger concerns about that person eating um, unrestricted amounts of fat because they've clearly run out of adipocyte storage, and that's why they're insulin resistant. Mm. So you're, you really don't have any place to put fat if you're severely insulin resistant. And uh, what we often do in the hospital, as you know, prior to bariatric surgery, for example, we'll put someone on a protein-sparing modified fast where they're eating nothing but protein, and just restricting non-protein energy. And these people typically lose a ton of weight really rapidly and their insulin sensitivity dramatically improves even though they're just eating a bunch of protein. Yeah. So I actually think that's optimal. I think if you're insulin resistant, you're clearly internally over fat and you don't have a lot of room to store any kind of energy, glucose or fat. And in that setting, you might want to just eat protein uh, a la the medical protein-sparing modified fast. I've seen patients do that and have pretty good results. So I, I don't think, I def, I'm not saying it's optimal to just eat protein, but I'm saying that I don't think it's actively bad. I, yeah. I would have no concerns about that. Interesting. The, the definition of insulin resistance can, can get so complicated, especially differentiating insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. Um, but I think there's clear, there's a, there's a physiological um, state where you're insulin resistant in the muscle cells and the liver, but not in the fat cells. So you're still storing plenty of fat. Um, insulin's working there. You're preventing lipolysis. You're increasing fat storage, uh, but you're sort of peripherally insulin resistant. Um, and I wonder if that would be different because you said when you're insulin resistant, you have nowhere else to put fat, but there are clearly people who are getting fatter and in insulin resistant. So I wonder if there's a differentiation we need to draw there about defining insulin resistance better rather than just using one you know blanket term of insulin resistance. Right, absolutely. And the reality is that your other tissues get insulin resistant before your fat cells do. Yeah. And the reality is that insulin resistance is this worst case scenario where anything bad you could get from insulin you're getting and nothing good. And so, I, yeah, I agree with that. But even in that setting, I don't see eating protein as being a problem. Yeah. I would still be more concerned about non-protein energy. Okay, interesting. And now the, you know, some of the other benefits about protein, um, we talked about preventing sarcopenia and maintaining lean muscle mass, but people have this concept that as long as I'm eating protein, I'm gonna gain muscle. Is it that simple? Uh, it actually is that simple if you were on a low protein diet. Like there are numerous studies 
where people were given a higher amount of protein in their diet and literally gained lean mass just sitting on the couch. Really? Like literally you will increase your lean mass by just eating more protein, uh, especially initially if you're coming from a lower protein diet, which is very interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And then there's also um, the, the concept of satiety and feeling full and less hungry. And a lot of the people in the low-carbon keto world talk about fat. You eat your fat to suppress your hunger. Uh, but there are actually some studies showing that if you go from 15 to 30% of your calories from protein, you dramatically reduce your, your appetite and, and increase your satiety. So if you were going to... And, and again, I almost heart, hate talking about it about macros because we don't eat protein. We don't eat fat. We eat food, and it's a combination of both. But if you were going to put your finger on on one macro or one one specific area that hits satiety the the, the best, would you pick protein? Uh, I Well, okay, first of all, we know that protein is far more satiating than carbs or fats in everybody, lean and obese. I mean, this is basically a medical fact. So protein provides the most satiety. And we also have studies in a low-carb setting showing that 30% protein destroys 15% protein for everything, hunger, uh, body composition, satiety, triglycerides, insulin, HDL, anything you can measure – 30% protein is better than 15% protein, even in a very low-carb setting. So I love, like, 30% protein diets. I mean, this is this is kind of, you know, hunter-gatherer diet territory, and I like to look at everything diet through an evolutionary lens. So if I had to pick a percent for everyone to be eating, it would probably be 30% protein. Now, if you're not eating any carbohydrates, that's roughly equal grams of protein and fat. That would be one-to-one -one grams of protein and fat. Foods that are one-to-one -one grams of protein and fat would be eggs, would be uh, ribeye steak. So basically, your steak and eggs region is kind of a 30% protein diet, and I love that. And I love that so much more than some keto diets that are 10% protein and 90% fat. I, I have a just a big problem with those diets. Yeah. Now, what if someone's doing well, though? Someone feels better, they're reversing their diabetes, they're losing weight, um, and their markers are improving. Do you still have sort of theoretical longer-term concerns, or do you think as long as all their markers are improving and they're feeling well, okay, it works for them, I just wouldn't recommend it blanketly for everybody? Oh, no, I can't argue with success. Yeah. If someone's doing well, that's great. I have patients who are very successful on extremely high-carb, low-fat diets as well. Yeah. And uh, if it works for you, I really can't argue with that. Yeah. So again, sort of a bimodal distribution. So um, with the energy source, if you're having a very low-fat, higher-carbohydrate diet, um, there are some reports that those people can be metabolically healthy, which sort of is completely contrary to everything we talk about in a low-carb, high-fat world. So how do you explain that? Oh, it's, it's pretty easy. It's carbs and fats together that are the problem, Yeah. right? So if you go low one or the other, you're going to be fine. Low-carb works great. Low-fat works for some people, usually people who are started out thin. Right. Um, low-carb and low-fat and high-protein works spectacularly well for all your bodybuilders and your bikini models and your aesthetic athletes out there yeah. so you go low in one of those two and you're pretty much okay yeah. and that's how that's how it works and then we know that the combination of the two is what's really driving the obesity epidemic it's carbs and fats together this is a, a huge dopamine reward in your brain and so all your obesogenic foods are high in carbon fat together it's your donuts it's your cookies it's your muffins it's your 
basically your baked potato with butter and your bagel with cream cheese and your candy bars and your it's it's this combination that's bad. So if you can get either one really low, you're home free. I, of course, I prefer low carb approach, but you know that's how that's how these higher carb diets are working. Yeah, interesting though how the baseline metabolic health is going to have a big impact though on who who can um, actually get away with the higher carb, low fat. Exactly. So if you're thin to begin with, uh, low fat is going to work great for you because most uh, most body fat comes from dietary fat. So if you're just not eating fat, you'll stay thin. On the flip side, if you're fat to begin with, you're going to be much better off with a low-carb approach because carbohydrate displaces fat oxidation so much. So if you have a bunch of fat you want to burn, you really want to get the carbs low. Uh, so I agree with you. It kind of depends on your starting point. Yeah, and quality of carbs as well because if you're following a high-carb, low-fat diet but it's still uh, refined carbs or high fructose, uh, I think you're still going to run into trouble. So quality does still matter. I think it's important to emphasize. Right. Yeah. So how about, okay, so let's get back to protein here for a second. The quality of protein, because you see all sorts of arguments about plant protein versus animal protein. So assuming we can agree on the amount of protein we require, how about the quality and the source of protein of where it's coming from? Do you see a big uh, differentiation there? I, I sure do. And here's how it works. All of these proteins are broken down into amino acids before they're even absorbed. So on some level, you're getting the same amino acids either way, and so why should it even matter? Who cares, right? But the reality is that plant foods are different than animal foods, and they have a different composition of amino acids, and they're less complete for animal health. You know what I mean? So like uh, leucine, um, lysine, methionine, tryptophan, some of these crucial amino acids that your body really needs and is really looking for from your diet are much lower in plant foods than in animal foods. So it's just a medical fact that you have to eat more of a plant protein to get the same uh, amount of uh, a full amino acid profile that you get from animal foods. And this is uh, really well known. Like if you're a bodybuilder, for example, and you're getting protein from pea protein or rice protein or hemp protein or one of these plant-based sources, everybody knows that you have to eat about 30 or 40% more to get all the amino acids you need to build muscle that you'd get from whey protein or egg white protein or some sort of animal-based protein. So there's definitely a higher quality uh, to animal proteins. And that's, that's if you're looking at just a pure protein. Then there's also absorbability. So a lot of the plant proteins are locked up in this fiber matrix and you're, some of it's not getting absorbed. And so you've got bioavailability in the GI tract and then you've got incomplete profile of amino acids. So the animal foods are crushing the plant foods. Yeah, so, you know, obviously people survive as vegans and there are plenty of vegan athletes who are doing very well. So it's not that they, they can't get it. It's just they're going to have to work harder, eat more calories um, and not have as bioavailable protein to get the same amount. So they're going to have to uh, just increase more carbs and, and more calories that go along for the ride to get the same amount of protein. Correct. And, and actually, not very many people know this, but a super, super low protein diet will actually give you a, a whole new level of leanness 
just because the cost of weight gain goes up exponentially as protein goes down. So if you can get your protein intake down below maybe 5% a day, you're very, very lean because your body can't afford to build any kind of mass at all. Uh, unfortunately, and this is how like the 30 bananas a day diet work, your fruititarian diet, it might be 5% protein, your potato hack is very low in protein. You're going to actually lose weight and get thinner, but a lot of what you're losing is lean mass. And so you're literally going to have lighter organs, your brain's going to be lighter, your bone, uh, of course, and bone and muscle is going to be way mm. lighter. So there's this like extreme low protein approach that you typically see in the vegan world like the mcdougall starch solution and this is you know extremely high carb but it's very low fat and it's very low protein and it works quote unquote for just weight loss but yeah. i don't know if you really want the osteopenia and the sarcopenia that is definitely going to come along with that yeah, perfect example of how weight, what the scale says and weight loss is not necessarily the same as health. Right. And interestingly, you know, there are some prominent vegans who have said, yeah, you can lose weight with heroin and cocaine, and but I'm not going to recommend that to my patients. And they do that. They say that in reference to low-carb diets, but it seems like they should probably be saying that in reference to this very low-protein diet Exactly, Amanda. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, very interesting. And then, of course, the nutrients that come along with the different sources of protein. Um, you know, higher nutrient availability in the animal proteins compared to the plant proteins. Um, again, not that you can't get them, but things like vitamin D and B12 and even um, heme iron and zinc and, of course, DHA. I mean, all of those are really fairly deficient in, in plant proteins, aren't they? Absolutely. And the reality is um, you need, you know, uh, at least 25 elements and minerals to run your body and be healthy. And plants are absorbing these minerals from the soil, but they're limited as to how far their roots can reach. So they'll absorb a certain amount of minerals. But animals go around and eat a bunch of different plants and they bioaccumulate minerals. They bioaccumulate and biomagnify nitrogen and minerals. So as you go up the food chain, as you go up the trophic levels from plants to herbivores to carnivores, you see higher and higher bioaccumulation and concentration of micronutrients like minerals and nitrogen and protein. And the reality is the higher you go up the food chain, the higher the nutrient density of the food you're eating. It's just a scientific fact. That's why animal foods are always higher in protein and micronutrient density than plant foods, period. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So another thing that's gotten popular lately talking about protein is collagen, sort of like a certain specific, very specific type of protein, um, so much so that people are recommending collagen pills and collagen supplements. And um, where do you stand on the on the subject of collagen and how that fits into a healthy nutritional pattern? Um, I, you know, I love nose-to-tail eating because it makes sense to me from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. And I do think that... Um, that's a good way to look at anything when it comes to diet is through an evolutionary lens. And so it would make sense to eat collagen and connective tissue and the whole animal nose to tail. Uh, on the flip side, every bit of protein you eat is just broken down into amino acids before you even absorb them into your body. So I, I'm never telling anyone, oh my gosh, you have to go out and eat X pounds of collagen a day just, you know, to get enough glycine. Uh, because basically if you're eating, you know, ground beef or an egg or if you're eating any kind of roughly whole animal 
a food source, you're going to get plenty, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I, I never tell anyone to take supplements. I think it's not really... Uh, if you have the extra money for collagen supplements, I would say just go out and buy, you know, some high quality animal sources like it. Just try to eat the whole cow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, you know, the nose to tail, we say it a lot, but a lot of people have a hard time doing it. Mm -hmm. Either psychologically they're hesitant to do it or they have a hard time finding um, organ meats or, you know, true nose to tail type foods. What are some practical tips you can give people on how to incorporate more of the concept of nose to tail eating? Sure. Well, first of all, anytime you're ingesting an entire organism, you're getting this nose to tail type phenomenon. So like eating an egg, for example, would be spectacular because you're eating the entire organism or eating small fish where you're eating the whole thing. Um, mussels, clams, oysters, uh, shellfish, uh, small fish like sardines, you're eating the entire organism. You're getting all the connective tissue. You're eating all the, you know, all the cartilage and the bones. Uh, ground beef, it's uh, not only is it the very cheapest protein you can get, but there's tons of connective tissue and stuff thrown in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I like eggs. I like ground beef. I like uh, ingesting seafood in its entirety, like uh, clams and oysters and mussels and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective because most people, when they think nose to tail, they think I need to eat liver, I need to eat kidney and brain and heart and... But you're saying, no, 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 let's focus on other organisms, but the whole organism. That's a, I think that's a good perspective. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I never eat liver. I never eat any organ meats, but I'm eating the heck out of, can I say heck on this podcast? You can say I'm heck. eating the heck out of <laughs> eggs and, uh, and sardines and oysters. I eat that stuff all the time. And I think we keto and low carb is, is very uh, ruminant and meat focused. So it's a good perspective that uh, there's a lot of other sources out there that are really good sources that we mm -hmm. can still focus on. N now, what about protein supplements? You briefly briefly touched on, you know, pea protein supplements versus whey versus uh, versus egg white supplements and, and protein shakes. And we hear a lot of pe about people, you know, taking extra protein with shakes. Um, I know your protein proponent, but do you see a difference in, again, the quality and the need of real food protein versus protein shakes and supplements? Absolutely. Yeah. I Honestly, I don't like protein supplements. I'm not a huge fan of whey powder. Whey is actually this byproduct of the cheese making process. It's just a cast off. It's an unwanted cast off of cheese making. They used to just feed it to pigs or just they used to fertilize soil with it or throw it away, literally. And then someone figured out you could evaporate and dry it and sell it to bodybuilders for like you know, 50 bucks a tub. So I'm not a huge fan. You get way more satiety with real food than drinking food. So you basically never want to drink your calories. You also, um, the, the speed at which the protein is delivered to your system is probably better if you're eating a steak instead of drinking whey protein. So I typically don't tell anyone to ever buy protein supplements. I usually don't recommend them. And for me, it's more of like an emergency level thing. Like if you just don't have time to eat, you might want to grab something like that. Yeah. But it's not my first choice. Got it. Got it. All right, so transitioning a little bit away from, from protein now to what you're also known for is, is the exercise guy. But not just any exercise. You're known as like the 15-minute get fit, get ripped exercise guy. And, you you know, people, I've heard lots of people say, I'm so upset at you that you can have the physique you have and be as fit as you are at only 15 minutes. And 
I think it's important to realize not everybody's going to have that response, right? Not everybody's going to be able to be you with 15 minutes of exercise. But tell us your, your general concept when you approach patients of how to implement exercise, the importance of exercise, and specifically what type of exercise translate to maximal health. Gotcha. Okay. So there's really basically two types of exercise. There's resistance exercise, and then there's cardio exercise, right? And you're getting specific benefits from these. When you're doing resistance exercise, you're trying to get more lean mass. You're trying to get more muscle. And it's phenomenal for health. Like the more muscle you have, the higher your glucose tolerance, your carbohydrate tolerance, the, the longer you're going to live, literally. And uh, the same thing with cardio. You're basically putting a stress on your body, hormetic stressor that's going to make it better later. Also with cardio, you're depleting muscle glycogen and after you deplete muscle glycogen, your fat oxidation goes through the roof and your insulin sensitivity goes through the roof. Your glucose disposal goes way up. And so you get all these massive health benefits. Depleting glycogen from your whole body is massive, like metabolic reset. So I like people to do two forms of exercise, cardio and resistance. And I like high intensity exercise because it's more time efficient. You can always trade intensity for duration when it comes to exercise. In other words, you could do a minute of all out 20 second sprint intervals and you're basically gonna get the same benefits you'd get from just walking for an hour or two. So the idea is you always can trade intensity for time. So I like people to do the highest intensity they can generate on some sort of cardio. That could be just jump squats, jumping up and down. That could be doing jumping jacks. It could be jumping rope. That could be just sprinting. That could be running up flights of stairs. Um, you're trying to maximize your energy output to deplete glycogen and ramp up your fat oxidation. And it's really, really good for metabolism. On the muscle resistance side, you're, you're, the goal is to generate the highest tension you can possibly get in your muscles for as long as possible. And it only takes maybe 30 to 60 seconds to max out on a set of pull-ups or push-ups or any kind of pushing or pulling or leg type exercise. So... I have this really, really, really tiny protocol where you're basically doing a pushing resistance exercise like a push-up, a pulling resistance exercise like a row or a pull-up, a leg resistance exercise like a squat, and you're doing them all to uh, failure, basically, which might only take 30 to 90 seconds. And the goal is you send this signal to your muscles that they're inadequate the way they are, and you, they have to be stronger or you're going to die, right? So you do this super high intensity failure type workout, which might take just a few minutes, and you actually get this adaptation where you have more muscle than next day. And I just think everyone should be doing this. It's, it's so important to put tension in your muscles this way and increase the headroom of how much work you're capable of. You're just gonna live longer. I mean, look at people in the ICU who are in bed for two weeks and then they can't even walk or they, they, you know, we have to send people to physical therapy to walk up a flight of stairs after just laying in bed for two weeks. Yeah. And, you know, as important as diet is, uh, you really start realizing how important generating tension in your muscles is if you've ever had your leg in a cast or you've been in bed for two weeks or something. I mean, your body just falls apart so rapidly. In a way, it's just as important as diet, in my opinion. That's a great perspective on that. It's not all about athletic performance. It's not all about how much you can bench press or squat, but it's about being able to regain your function after a severe setback like that. And the, the 
better starting point you have, the easier it's going to be to regain function. Um, so it sounds like the, the key to your exercise program then is to failure. That's it sounds like the intensity. Key, yes, the absolutely. Key intensity. Mm-hmm. Now, what about someone who can't even do a push up or, or, you know, can't even do a pull up? Like, how do they even get started when they're starting from such a, a sedentary baseline? Right. It's all on a spectrum. So you start with something that's easier, like a wall push up. If you can't do a push up, you start with a wall push up. Uh, you do wall push ups to failure uh, a week later. Now you can do a push-up on the back of a couch or on a kitchen um, countertop. Uh, once you've done that long enough, you can do push-ups on a, off of a bench. And then pretty soon you're doing knee push-ups. And then you're doing regular push-ups. And then you're doing diamond push-ups. And then you're doing one-arm push-ups. And then you're just the strongest person anybody knows. <laughs> and, and it's just a slow, gradual progression from just, oh, my gosh, I can't even do one wall push-up to as high as you want to go. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point about adapting it to the person mm-hmm. and getting them progression. started. Yeah, it's progression. Progression. You start super easy. Just you know, get in the door with one wall push up, and then just take it from there. Now, what about um, rest periods? Uh, is this something that you do or would recommend your patients do every day, or do you think since you're going to failure, you need a day or two for rest and recovery before going again? What's your your time frame look like? So there, there's kind of three variables you can alter when it comes to exercise. There's intensity. There's frequency and then there's volume, right? I like maxing out intensity because it's the most time efficient. Uh, Then when it comes to frequency and volume, I also like frequency because it's more time efficient as well. So I like high frequency, maybe daily, maybe every other day. So I'm typically recommending people do these sorts of exercises, if not daily, maybe every other day. But the volume is so low that you're just not going to be overtrained. You know what I mean? It might take you two minutes to hit absolute failure multiple times on a pulling exercise, and you're definitely going to be able to recover from that in a day or two. Okay. And what about the concept that people are sometimes afraid of exercise because it makes them hungrier and it sort of gives them an excuse to eat more and sort of the psychological side of things that exercise can then sort of harpoon weight loss and uh, sticking to a nutritional program? Well, the entry, okay, the interesting thing here is that if you're doing low intensity, steady state cardio, let's say you're just lightly jogging for an hour or two. Yeah, you're probably going to be hungrier after that, and you might overshoot and eat more. But for anybody out there who's done a high-intensity uh, exercise protocol where you do Tabata sprints, you know, sprint as hard as you can for 30 seconds, rest for 30 seconds, one thing you'll notice after that is you're just absolutely not hungry because your blood sugar goes up a fair amount. You get this release of a glycogen, glucose from the liver, and a lot of people notice that they're actually less hungry after they do this. And I encourage people to try this. If you're hungry, try doing 30 second jump squat Tabatas. You know, you jump up and down as many times as you can in 30 seconds, rest for 30 seconds, do it again for 30 seconds, rest again for 30 seconds. Do a couple cycles of that and see how hungry you are afterwards. A lot of people are just really not hungry. So I'm not convinced that high intensity exercise is going to automatically make people hungry and make them eat more. I think it's the exact opposite. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I know from my days training for triathlons, you know, going for long bike rides and long runs, I was just starving afterwards, but doing a good, you know, hard 30 minute session at the gym, uh, completely different, not as hungry. Absolutely. Uh, And I think a lot of people see that. 
right? So we've heard a lot about the philosophies of Dr. Naaman. And tell us now about Ted. Ted the family man, Ted the day in the life. What does it look like for you, how, how these health concepts you apply to your everyday life and to your family life? Right, right, right. So I'm, I'm married. I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful 12-year-old daughter. And so we have this uh, wonderful little family. And uh, the whole family is really into diet and exercise. Uh, my daughter is going to the gym and working out. And, uh, you know, my wife is really careful with her diet. And everybody is, you know, healthy and happy. Um, and then uh, I'm a primary care doctor at one of the biggest uh, medical centers in Seattle. So I basically just punch a clock there and see patients. And uh, it's very rewarding. I have a really great patient population. So I love my job. I, you know, This diet exercise thing is kind of a hobby, but I'm lucky enough to be able to incorporate it into my job as well. So I'm really grateful. The, the hobby and the uh, personal health journey and the job all sort of align in the same direction. Yeah. And then just on a, on a personal level, I'm addicted to ultimate Frisbee. Like I just basically live to play ultimate. It's one of my favorite things ever. Uh, I am a bassist, uh, so I've played in a lot of bands and done a lot of uh, local music scene in Seattle kind of stuff. All right. Um, yeah, and that's kind of me on a personal personal level. Multiple levels to Dr. Ted. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't have daughters. I have two boys. But I can imagine a, a teenage daughter might be a challenge um, in terms of wanting to instill these, these healthy habits, especially when she's out in her own social circles and she wants to fit in and she wants to assert her independence. And, and I guess I shouldn't just say daughter. That can happen with any teenager, really. So are you starting to see any of that creep up with your relationship and, um, or your, your willing, you're wanting to, your daughter to uh, keep up with these healthy habits? Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, my daughter's 12. And, of course, a 12-year-old girl is basically she's ready to move out and get her own place and she realizes <laughs> her parents are just insane yeah. um so what the way we handle it is at home we just surround uh, the kids surrounded with healthy food like you know okay we're having you know here's all our healthy food we've got tons of steak and eggs and we have tons of meat and we have tons of veggies and we have tons of uh, low sugar fruit and it's just like good food everywhere right lots of good food but then when she goes out, we don't restrict her at all. You know, we just tell her to eat whatever she wants. And it, it really ends up kind of working out because, you know, mm -hmm. she'll go to a birthday party and eat birthday cake. And then she's like, oh, you know, that is kind of sweet. And she kind of gets to the point where she looks around and she looks at what people are eating. And she's like, wow, are they really going to eat that, you know? And uh, so... Uh, Honestly, it's just like lead by example. She sees how her parents eat. She sees the food that we have at home. She's free to do whatever she wants. And uh, it seems to work out, yeah. at least so far. You certainly have a laid back approach that seems to work because mm -hmm. you lead by example. And mm -hmm. I think that's so important. Yeah, the other day, um, my son was in a place where there was, you know, this big buffet of all these like candies and cookies and, and sweets and and he asked if he could have a cookie, and we said, you know, sure, everybody's having cookies, whatever. We're not going to fight about it here, and we'll, we'll let you do it. And then he went back for a second cookie, and then he went back for a third cookie, and then later that night he was complaining how his stomach was was, was bothering him, and um, I, I was secretly very happy. But he said, mm -hmm. why didn't you stop me from going back for more cookies? And it was a great opportunity to have this discussion. It's not our job to, to tell you what to do. It's our job to educate you and show you the way and help you make your own decisions. And sometimes you sort of have to let people fall uh, to learn. 
And maybe it's the same thing with a birthday cake, right? She realized this is pretty sweet. Maybe I didn't need it. But it's that recognition that, wow, look at the way people are eating. Because in our society, we don't want to be normal. Like the normal in society is broken and backwards. And so you almost have to be abnormal and stand out, which can be hard for kids. So I like your right. approach. It's a, it's a relaxed approach that seems to be working and hopefully continues to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> keep us posted. All right. Well, it's good to, very good to get a slice of uh, Dr. Naaman and also Ted as the person and, uh, and see how you, how you walk the walk and, and talk the talk for sure. Now, I know you're, you're very active on uh, social media, on Twitter and on Facebook, and you have a website. So tell us how people can, can find you to learn more. Uh, yeah, I have a little Facebook group, Burn Fat, Not Sugar, and a website. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty active on there. And so it's pretty easy to track me down. Great. And if anybody's in the Seattle area and wants a great primary care doctor, they know where to turn, right? Absolutely. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the Diet Doctor Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.